0: Good morning. I, I recently saw a post on my Facebook feed that I found interesting. A post by a guy that was describing why he came to church. And he said, I don't come to church because I have to. I don't come to church because that's what everyone expects of me. I don't come to church because uh, it, it pleases some person in my life. So I come to church because this past week I have failed. This past week, I have, I have struggled and suffered in my fight against temptation. And despite my failures, Christ died for me. Christ shed His blood that I might live. Christ shed His blood that I might have a hope, have an opportunity to stand before my God, reconciled. And so I come to church because of the great joy that I have in my Savior and the great joy that I can share with others who I know are going through the same thing as me. I really like that. I really liked what I, what I thought about when I read that. And I realized it's my joy to be here this morning with you. It's my joy to be here with, with visitors, with those that uh, have, have come to be with us, friends of ours. We are so thankful to, to have you all with us and to lift up God's name in song and in praise, to offer up the prayers that we've prayed to Him, and to take a, a moment, and, and admittedly a short moment, to open up His Word and to learn. From his guidance. I want you to be opening your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. I I am not going to to be too long in the tooth this morning uh, as we look at these passages because I believe the the instruction and the admonition and the encouragement that we receive from them is is fairly straightforward. We've been looking at the 1 Thessalonian letter uh, off and on over the past couple of weeks, and one thing that we've seen in it that is just fascinating is the type of people that are being found in Thessalonica. It opens with this beautiful picture, uh, revealing the wonderful people of God that have, that have flourished in this, in this place. And Paul writes to them and he says, I have heard Silas has, has brought note of your, your labor, of love, of your patient working in hope, of your faith that is prompting you to be busy in the kingdom of God. And he notes that in all of this that's going on, you not only received the gospel and became followers of of Christ and of His apostles, but you became great examples as well. You became a light to the world around you. You became known uh, by your name and by your action to those throughout Macedonia and Achaia and, and became someone that everyone else can now bottle their lives after and follow. And it's fascinating As we think about the people that this was, as we think about the people that that they had been and what they had become, and how he says that through great affliction, it wasn't easy for you to become this, but you have become this sort of people. And that that leads me to wonder, if they did that, how did they do that? How did they become this great example because that's what I want to be? How can I become that great example as well? Well, today that's what I want to look at. I want to finish up chapter 1. We've looked at verses 1 through 8 so far in our survey of of 1 Thessalonians. I want to begin looking in verses 9 and 10 this morning because what we see is a picture of just how they became such great examples to the world. And it begins with this statement that is made in verse 9. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you. Now, as I read that and as I pondered over that, I, can, I couldn't help but think, well, who's the they that Paul is talking about here in this, in, in this sentence? And he says, they're the, these people that are making this declaration, who are they? And it could be all those who are believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The, the example that they have set forth, their name that's gone out and spread throughout all of Macedonia, these people are talking about what they did for the apostles as they were there in Thessalonica. but also in verse 8, he says, From you the word of the Lord has sounded forth not only in Macedonia and Caia, but also in every place. You don't go anywhere around the uh, around this area. You can't go anywhere and not hear about the change that has taken place and about the people that the Thessalonians have become. It is on the lips of all men that something is going on here. And so it could be that these people from every place Are the ones that are declaring this and notice that whoever they are what they're declaring is as the king james says the manner of entry if you have the esv this morning you're reading the kind of reception that we received or maybe you have the god's word translation which just simply says how you welcomed us what they're talking about is these people who probably should not have been as welcoming to a person who's coming proclaiming one God that is God overall, that is a true God, and they're in the midst of believing in tons of different gods and, and the impact that that has on their life, not only in, 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 a, in a physical life, what it does to their financial life, how, how that has great changes to them. They're not the kind of people you expect to receive them in a hospitable way, and yet they welcome them. He says you have been transformed is what your life is telling to them. You have been changed. You have been made different. In fact, as he finishes up, he says they not only declare the, the manner of entry, but how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. When we think about turning to God from idols, in that day, I hope we withdraws and conjures up pictures of what that looked like. There were temples to idols. There were vast places where you go and, and you would worship specific idols and you would worship them in, in these drunken passions and they would be filled with, with, with immorality that, that is just unspeakable, unthinkable that the things that they would do to worship these various gods, they would spend times in gluttonous and, ha- and, and, and gluttony and have these great feasts. And he's saying you've left all these things. These things that the world around you, they view, that is that is okay. That is how you worship these gods. You no longer do these things, you no longer serving these idols, but also you had household idols. You had the idol that you you had in your home that represented the God that was watching over your family to keep them safe. You had the the idol that was in your shop that made sure that you prospered and, and that you gave glory to whenever your shop was doing well. And likely, likely they had not only left these idols, they had destroyed these idols. They had taken these and probably gotten rid of them in some way that they didn't have to hope that they would come back and be a temptation in their lives, but probably wouldn't be giving them to somebody else and say, here, I don't do this anymore, you have it. No, it's very likely they probably just destroyed these things. And what we see in this first verse is there's just been this huge change in the life of these believers. And people are talking about it. People are seeing it. And maybe it's just all these believers throughout Macedonia that are going, wow, look at what the Thessalonians have done. Look at how they have changed. A people that had no right welcoming in this message. These are the last type of people that we would have thought would have ever been like, yeah, I've got all of these gods, but I'm just going to turn away from them to serve this one God that is the actual true God. The rest of these are just fake. Somebody comes preaching that message, we would have never believed that they would have accepted it. And we would have never believed they would have accepted it the way they did. But I want you to think of this also in, in another way. And this is just a possibility. This is just a thought I had as I was studying through this. Is what if this is not believers? Certainly likely it is believers that are saying that, but what if it's not? What if it's unbelievers? What if it's those in every place that are looking and going, Did you see what they did? Have you ever thought about that? You ever thought about the example that you set is spoken about? even by people that don't believe like you? Maybe your neighbors that don't have the same beliefs that you have, that don't believe in God the way that you believe in God, but they see your example, and maybe they talk about it. Can you picture maybe the neighbors of some of these, these Christians from Thessalonica that go to their other neighbors because that's what neighbors do. They talk about each other. We t- share news about what's going on in the neighborhood, and I can't imagine that that's probably that much different uh, from, uh, in 2,000 years that we don't probably still do similar things today. So, can you imagine them going to their neighbor and say, Hey, did you see what, what Jim did? Did you see what Joe did? Would you, whoever this is, did you see how, how he took, he used to have that idol that he kept in the, And he's gotten rid of that. He's no longer showing up at the temple of Aphrodite or the temple of, of, of Zeus or the temple of Apollos or any of these gods, that, whether Roman or Greek, whoever it was that they served. He's no longer so, so, uh, showing up there. In fact, he's serving this, this God of the Jews. They, they want Yahweh, Jehovah, he's serving. He's serving that God, and it's it's ruining his life. People are people are just they're 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 being hard on him at work. They're they're not giving him. He's missing out on all the things that we get to enjoy, but he sure is happy, and he sure is busy. And I, I don't I don't understand it, and I hope what you see by by me bringing this up is just maybe a possibility of something that happened is through our examples, other people. Share the gospel. Through my example, through my life, if I'm having the, the life of the Thessalonians, if I'm having, setting the example of the Thessalonians, even people who maybe don't believe are busy telling other people, look at him. Look at the difference in his life. Look at the changes. And I don't understand it, but you can't admit, you must admit, you can't miss that this has had some sort of impact on him that is visible That's what's going on in Thessalonica. That's what's happening in Thessalonica. People see that these guys have done something remarkable. And what it is that they've done is they've turned away from who they were. I want you just to think about that phrase for a moment. They've turned away from idols. What that really means is they've turned away from who they were. We think of the word repentance. We have such a hard time sometimes trying to define that word, trying to describe that to the world. You have to repent to be saved. Well, what does that mean? And we've got all sorts of little little antidotes that we use to try and describe it. Uh, The the, the one that I've used in the past so often is the idea of making a 180. You're you're walking in the desert. You're walking in the wilderness. You're out somewhere and you realize you've become lost. What do I do to make sure I, I, I turn around and I go the other direction? A complete 180 to try and find that path to to where I know where I am. I'm no longer lost anymore. You are doing a 180 away from walking in the world to walking in Christ. Here, we have a picture of true repentance. And it's found in the way that they turned from idols. These people were identified as idol worshippers. They were people who served other gods. And they turned from that to serve this one true and living God. And that sentence, that sentence has such great implications. Because what it tells us then is they did more than just turn. It wasn't enough to just say, okay, I recognize that these over here, that's not the way to go. I'm going to turn. But then they did something with that turning. They did something, and the Greek, it's, it, it, the, the word, I'm not even going to try to pronounce it because I, I tried to remember this word over and over again and I realized I'm just going to mess it up. But the Greek word that is used here in verse 9 to say they served the living God is not a word, it's not a word that mankind would ever connect in the Greek culture between a man and a God. This is not the relationship that you would ever find Grecians, Romans, connecting with the way I live in relationship to one of my gods. Because what it means is servitude. It means slavery. It means bondservant. And so I want us to think about that for just a moment. First, going back to the idea that what it is they've turned to serve is the true and living God. We read last week from Psalm 115, verses 1 through 8. And if you remember, as we read through those verses, he described those, these people who, who create idols and serve their idols. And you remember some of the things that he points out in them. He said, "Those idols can't speak. They don't have mouths, but they have mouths, but they can't speak. They can't provide comfort for us. They can't pr- provide instruction for us. They have ears, but they can't hear. They can't sympathize because they can't understand. They aren't able to enjoy our sacrifices, even though they have noses. They, they don't have, even though they have hands, they're not able to give us a hand in our lives. They have feet, but they're not able to walk with us. They have mouths, but they're not able to talk with us. And what he describes is an idol that is absolutely useless to do anything to possibly rescue us from the situations that we're in. And then he goes on to say, even are those who trust in them. He says this is the living God. That's what they have turned to. That is who they are now serving. The living God. The God who can hear. The God who can speak. The God who can smell and handle and walk and talk. And this is who it is that they have come to serve. And that idea of serving again, is so distant from this picture of God and man relationship between the Greeks and the Romans because the idea of morally serving a God was never ever thought of. You appease a God. Whenever it comes to Zeus, you don't serve Zeus. You hope that Zeus doesn't get mad at you and, and strike your, your, your cattle dead or worse yet, strike you dead with something. You just are in constant fear of this God and you want to make him happy, but you're never ever considering the thought that you might have to be a slave to him. No, instead, you're just you. You live your life, you go about your day, and every now and then when something good happens or something bad happens, you either attribute it to Zeus or or to whatever God we're speaking of, or you make a sacrifice to try to appease Him. But in the end of the day, you are you, and, and He is He, and that's the separation. And that's how the Greeks and the Romans oftentimes thought about their gods. And it becomes scary when I think about that, because I see that's a lot of times how we think about our God. About the true God, we fail to see the connection that we have to Him as servants. We begin to look at it. Someone's well. I just if something is going good, I'm going to give Him thanks. If something's going bad, I'm going to try to make a better sacrifice in my life. But I'm me, and He's He, and we'll just live with that relationship. That's not how these Thessalonians lived. That is not the picture that they portray of a follower of Christ. Instead, they turn from their idols and they turn to serving Him, to walking with Him. (laughs) I love when when technology just decides, I'm going to do something different. They turn to walking with Him and living subservient to Him. And they could do that because they recognize, one, He's real. He is not something that somebody made. He's not an image of Him could never be made on this earth to actually ever fully describe what he is because he made that image. And that image is me. And so what am I going to do? I'm going to live my life in moral subjugation to him because he is a moral God. that's the big difference that you find between uh, him and, and the gods of the people around. There's no morality to these gods. There's no reason to live morally to them because they have no bearing on their lives and they have no morality. And they're seeing who God is. So turning to Him and serving Him replies more than just saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change the way I'm walking. It's more than just, I'm not going to go to the idol shop anymore. I'm not going to go to the temple anymore. It's I'm going to begin to understand who God is and who I am and how that has an effect in my life. And that's where we see at the end of verse 9 that these are people who have turned and these are people who serve. Turned and served. But they didn't stop there. Verse 10 continues with what else they were doing. He says, They also waited for His Son from heaven. It says, And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. What prompts a people to turn? What prompts a people to repent? What prompts a people to change their focus in such a way as these people had done? What prompts them to become such examples? What prompts them to become such workers in a kingdom? It's not because a preacher got up and fussed at them. It's not because a parent said, you should be doing this, you should be doing this. It's not because a spouse said, if you don't do that, our relationship's never going to be what it could be. That's not what prompts them. What prompts them is waiting on Jesus Christ. Having this mentality to wait on the Lord is what prompts them to make such great changes, to turn and to serve And I'm going to say right now that that's probably one of the hardest things in our society today. I was talking with my brother-in-law about the Mandela effect. I don't know if anybody's ever heard about that. Um, Well, feel free to to talk about it after services, and it is just one of the most mind-blowing things that's happening in our society right now, in my opinion. But essentially what it means is people remember things that never, ever happened, that are not real. But they remember it. I, I remember this, this happened. It's named after the fact that Nelson Mandela, many people believe that he died in prison. Nelson Mandela did not die in prison. He was, rele- he was imprisoned improperly, but, but he was released and he died in old age just not too long ago, about five years ago. But people remember this remarkably clear. No, he died in prison. And the reason why I believe is because we are inundated with so much information like never before in history we just it's like our eyes are just propped open and information is flooding into our minds at a staggering rate and that makes it hard for us to remember what's real and what's not real but it also makes it hard to do one other thing and that is it's hard to wait i need to find something i know uh, we talked about it in class like google Google challenge. That was the thing that we go out to eat sometimes at dinner and somebody brings something up. And I, I think this happened. Well, I think that happened. Google challenge. Phones come out. Let's see who can find the answer first. We're going to get into our, that World Wide Web and we're going to find it. But then you're somewhere and I don't have phone service and I don't have Internet and I'm trying to find something. I'm getting out of the Bible. I'm getting out a book and I'm like, okay, I'm going to find this. I'm going to flip through it. About 30 seconds in, you're like, wow, I could have done been done with this if I had the Internet. I don't like wait I think that is hard for for our, for our society It's so hard for us to wait we don't like to wait when it comes to a restaurants no one wants to be like, wait to be seated you come in and they go it's gonna be 25 minutes and you're like oh let's go somewhere else when that meal would take you an hour to fix on your own at the house but yet 25 minutes is just way too long for me to wait for someone to come and serve me whenever we are sitting in traffic at a red light at a traffic jam whatever it is the fact that I have to wait five minutes and add that into my trip time to my destination, it just runs right through me. It's going to ruin the rest of my day. I'm going to be mad. Why are you mad? I don't know. Well, it's because I had to wait on the way and it just got everything started off on the wrong foot. we don't like to wait. That's why we invented microwaves. No one wants to wait for things. But this is what Paul is saying led to the faithfulness of these Christians, that they were able to wait They have turned from their old lives, identified by idolatry, to a life of service of God. And they've filled their lives with works of faith and labors of love and patience of hope. They've become a gospel themselves proclaiming in their own lives the good news of Jesus Christ. And they're doing all this despite the fact that they're dealing with great affliction. Their country hates them. And they're being mistreated by their own people because of who they are. And the reason they're able to do on that is because they're waiting on jesus christ and the reason they can wait the reason that they're willing to do that is because they know that there is a wrath to come and that jesus will deliver us from that wrath to come that's becoming increasingly more popular to just we're going to ignore that point we're not going to talk about that The fact that there is a wrath to come. We'll talk about God. We'll talk about His love. We'll throw out the first three quarters of the Bible because that scares us, because that God looks angry. So we're not going to look at that at all. And we're just going to focus on love and happiness and everyone goes to heaven. And and that's just going to be what makes us comfortable. Paul speaks very clearly in verse 10. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. It's coming. And these people recognize that. And they recognize that Jesus is the salvation. He is the the saving point to bring them out of that. And so because of that, because they have hearts and eyes open to the truth of God that says, I know that one day God is going to judge the world. And I'm not scared of that because I know that I have the blood of Christ. That He is my Savior. Come to rescue me. I will wait I will endure I will deal with hardships someone thinks that I am foolish for serving this God that's okay they can think that I'm gonna lose my job I'm gonna lose money I may even lose my house my friends my, my my life that's okay because I know who I'm serving. I know who he is I know what he has done I know what he is going to do and so I We'll wait. And what they're really doing is saying, I see true value. You see, we don't have a hard time waiting when the waiting is worth it. When the waiting is worth it, we'll wait no matter the cost. It's a brand new piece of technology and it's Black Friday and I get a good deal. I'm going to be there for three days with a tent camped out in front of a store because I'm going. The new Marvel movie's coming out, right? So a new Marvel movie's going to come out. We're going to pile up, and we're going to wait for that. We're going to get the best seats. I guess you don't really do that anymore since you reserve your seats. But still, we're waiting for for this to to be released. We will wait for those things. We'll wait in lines at amusement parks that are ridiculously long to get on a 30-second ride and get off and be just about sick. But it was worth it, worth the wait. We wait for that perfect someone that we're going to share the rest of our life with, and we'll wait years, years to find that person that we will commit ourselves to and that we will love as husband and wife. We need to have a perspective change. When we look at our lives around us, we see, this is hard. I wanted to do something today. I wanted to go somewhere this morning. I wanted to... All my friends went out and they were going to have this big party and they were going to drink and they were going to do all these things and, and that looked like fun and I just wanted to do it. We need to have a perspective shift to see true value like the Thessalonians did. The Christians there were willing to turn away from their own identities to serve God because they knew it would be worth it. And if it's true about them, I need to ask, is it true about us? Is it true about you and is it true about me? Have we turned from our idols? And I think sometimes it's hard for us to see that because in our mind, idols are just that. It's a carved rock, it's a carved piece of stone, it's in a temple somewhere, it's in, a, it's in some sort of special place in our house that we've, we've decorated it all up and we've got candles lit around it and that's, that's our idols. But they're more than just carved images. Sometimes idols are people. Sometimes idols are jobs. Sometimes idols are common Everyday things, and sometimes, sometimes idols are just thoughts. Sometimes idols are just concepts in our brain. One of the greatest pictures of that, and probably the most popular idol that people erect and worship today, is the idol of comfort. How I feel. What makes me feel the way that I want to feel? What makes me feel good? Because after all, I live in a society that says... I'm just going to be me, and I can do what I want to do, and I can have it my way. Why? Because I'm me, and that's the greatest point of of existence in the whole world in the eyes of our culture today. Everything is about how I feel. And so if I've experienced discomfort, if I experience something that makes me unhappy, if I experience something that becomes an attack on my comfort levels, then I don't need to do that. Because I would rather sacrifice to the God of comfort than to the true living God that can rescue me from the wrath that is to come. For many, they look at that and they say, things in my marriage aren't the way that I want them to be. And so I'll just, I'll just divorce my spouse and get a new one because it's about me. Things in, in, in my church, there are things that are going on there that I don't like. I don't like the way that this person said this thing. I don't like the way that, that the preacher preached on that. I don't like how long the service is. I don't like how many songs were sung. I don't like whatever, X, Y, Z. And so I'm just going to go somewhere else where I find something that makes me happy. Instead of saying, these are afflictions. And if you don't like something about the, uh, about the worship that goes on, where you, where you worship at, and if you don't like something in your spouse, I'm here to say, that's okay. I don't think we should look at that and feel like somehow I have failed miserably and, and, and I'm just, uh, th- there's no hope for me. You serve a God that says, I'm bigger than that and I can help you with that because I do have hands and I do have feet and I do have ears and eyes and I want to know so instead of saying, I'll just sacrifice this to the God of comfort and see what I get from it, I always say, I'll take this to the true God of heaven and I'll see how He can help me with it. How He can help me maybe to adjust my view, to adjust how much I'm thinking about maybe myself and not thinking about my spouse, not thinking about the church, not thinking about whatever the situation is. Help me not to be influenced by our society, a society of comfort seekers. Help me to be influenced by God, and by His Word, and by people like the Thessalonians. Help me not to choose anything. And that's ultimately what, what idolatry boils down to. Help me not to choose anything that plates itself in a position standing between me and the God that, that, owe, that I owe my service to. And I think, possibly, the mistake that we've made in the past. Because for so long as a church, we have called and made a plea to our members. Don't choose XYZ over God. Don't choose money over God. Don't choose a, a, a job over God. Don't choose a spouse over God. Don't choose drugs or alcohol or lusts or greed. Don't choose anything over God. We've pleaded and pleaded with people to do that. And their answer is why? And maybe we've failed to give them the why. To help them have that perspective change. To see the value of choosing God over these other things. Because there is a God that is greater than all of these things. He is bringing wrath. And we don't know the day and we don't know the hour. It could be today. It could be next year. We we, We don't know. But wrath is coming. But He gave His Son. And He raised His Son from the dead. And His Son is coming to rescue. His Son is coming to save. And so instead of looking and placing our value on these worldly things, let's place our value where it belongs, on God in heaven. Let's turn from our idols. Let's serve the true and living God. And let's wait on His Son with hearts focused on eternity. This has been a short lesson over two very short verses. But what I want you to see in all of this is that the Christians of Thessalonica were such great examples because of three things. Because of turning, serving, and waiting. This week, I challenge you to think about those three things. Have I turned? Am I serving? What am I waiting on? That's our desire here at Lake Street is to help assist you in that assist you from turning from the things in your life that stand in opposition to God and coming to Him in service as a child, as a a member of His kingdom, serving the King, waiting on His Son who has gone to prepare a place for us in eternity with Him. And we long and look forward to His return because we know He comes as our salvation. If there's anything that we can do to assist you with that this morning, I encourage you, won't you please let it be known. Come forward as we stand. And as we sing.